date, it was uh, 27th of February. It was uh, first day after the war started. I don't know, maybe 12 o'clock. Uh, first time here air raid. I had a panic. Didn't want to leave them alone without my help, but my father decided that it will be better if I will leave Odessa and go to Kishnau. They will be calmer if we, I was definitely safe. Hi, and welcome to Deviews, a podcast series brought to you from the Global International Development Program at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Global translates academic research into a practical understanding of community development, an approach empowering communities in need across the world to prosper and succeed. I'm Chagit Kakov-Chelny, a humanitarian professional and a global alumni, and we are here to talk about humanitarian and development work through current events and case studies. exploring the most pressing challenges and questions the field holds. Today, we're going to speak about the war in Ukraine and explore the background and current challenges of international humanitarian action. It's the 27th of February, 2022. We're in Palanka, the southern border between Ukraine and Moldova. Thousands of women are crossing, entering this new country in freezing cold weather, most with babies and infants on their arms, one suitcase, and great fear and uncertainty in their eyes. It's an open field, an empty lot, with two large tents, one of local volunteers offering a warm drink and some food, and another offering shelter from the cold, a place for women to regain strength, receive guidance from psychotherapists, and needed winterization kits while their kids play and rest. Some of these women have traveled seven days to get to Palanka. Some walked kilometers. They are mentally and physically at their most vulnerable state, leaving their husbands, parents, their homes, work, and schools behind. And in one day, they have become the refugees the whole world is speaking of. Oh, um, honestly, I felt ho- horror because of uh, uh, I realization, I have a realization that this is a real war because uh, the last days I spent every time in my flat uh, with my parents and I didn't go outside. So I didn't understand uh, what happened, really. Veronika Kovalchuk, a third year student for international economic relations from the Odessa National University. I know Veronika from our work together in Moldova. Because my father is from Moldova, we have a lot of relatives here. And uh, he said that he doesn't want to listen about it. He um, fi- found in Odessa his wife and he um, have uh, houses uh, and a lot of memories from Odessa. And he says that he will, be, he will stay in Odessa as, soon, as long as uh, he needs. Some numbers to understand the proportions of the influx of people fleeing Ukraine. After one month of crisis, over 4 million refugees have escaped the country. Close to 10 million are internally displaced people in their own country. Over 400,000 crossed through Moldova, and more than 100,000 stayed, searching for immediate and long-term solutions for their children and themselves. According to UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, The war in Ukraine and other conflicts in the world, such as Yemen, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Venezuela, and so much more, 
have pushed the number of people forced to flee conflict, violence, human rights violations, and persecution to the staggering milestone of 100 million people for the first time in record. In just three years, the number jumped from 80 million to 100 million, more than double from the number of refugees post-World War II. It's important to remember that there's a range of actors that may offer to conduct humanitarian uh, relief operations. Itai Epstein, an expert in international law, is a senior consultant to UN bodies and EU institutions worldwide. And in the past few years, he's been working with a Norwegian refugee council. It could be states, it could be intergovernmental organizations, think of the European Union, the EU, and it could be non-governmental uh, organizations, whether they're international non-governmental organizations or national. Hitai, can you take us back a few steps to where and when the humanitarian intervention was conceptualized? Who gives humanitarian actors the right to operate during emergencies and what are their obligations and areas of responsibility? So the departure point is that the state uh, is responsible to meet the needs of persons either within its territory, when we are referring to a territorial state or a sovereign state, or in territory under its effective control. Let's remember that because, you know, this is the extraterritorial responsibility. At any rate, once consent has been granted, parties to an armed conflict must allow and facilitate rapid and unimpeded uh, passage of humanitarian relief supplies, equipment, and personnel. There's no expectation, you know, that goods are airdropped. Uh, supplies, humanitarian response comes with qualified, uh, capable uh, personnel they may prescribe technical arrangements for such passage. And, and it serves a number of purposes. They allow parties to assure themselves that relief consignments are exclusively humanitarian, that there's no wrongdoing on the part of, of humanitarians, that it's genuinely humanitarian. They prevent humanitarian relief convoys from being uh, endangered or from hampering military operations. And they ensure that humanitarian relief supplies and equipment meet minimum health and safety standards. In the aftermath of an emergency, it usually takes 24 to 48 hours until another layer of chaos unfolds, the international response. Flashing cameras everywhere, hundreds of volunteers, organizations from around the world wishing to help and be the first responders, the local government trying to take lead and control over the situation, local organizations who best know the needs of the communities are being left behind, Misguided information is distributed, duplications of actions, waste of resources, and so much more. In the chaos of a rapidly evolving, ever-changing situation with so many actors, how can we make sure the humanitarian actions are indeed efficient, impartial, and well-coordinated? When emergencies occur, coordination is essential, and there is a lot of uncertainty. I think you, you've referred to chaos. Uh, so this is where, you know, when things are chaotic and evolve rapidly, you need timely, efficient and effective coordination. What ultimately that means is less gaps and less overlaps and waste in the assistance delivered by humanitarian organizations. And again, we're talking about this whole range of humanitarian organizations. The foundations of the current international humanitarian coordination system were set a long time ago in December of 1991. It eventually led to the development of the cluster approach to humanitarian coordination. So what are clusters? Clusters are groups of humanitarian organizations, representative of humanitarian organizations. They could be UN and non-UN. In each of the main sectors of humanitarian action, in healthcare, 
in food and nutrition, uh, in shelter, water and sanitation, education, uh, protection of human rights. All of them bring together along these clusters or themes of, of intervention or action representative of these organizations. And at the level of, of a country or, or context response, in the, in, the, in the case of Ukraine, we're seeing a regional uh, response uh, plan and regional uh, coordination. Clusters support uh, service delivery, humanitarian relief delivery, by providing a platform uh, for agreement on approaches, uh, elimination of duplication through coordinating first the needs assessment. We need to know what the needs are, where they happen to be, and, and then devising you know, a response plan. So we have a needs overview and a response plan. Uh, we're able to then analyze possible gaps in the response and prioritize given the fact that often resources are limited. For many years, humanitarian aid and development were two completely separate concepts and professional frameworks. Humanitarian aid, or action, as referred to today, is short-term, delivered in disaster zones responding to an incident or event, focused on saving lives. Whereas development is long-term, delivered in developing countries responding to systematic problems, focusing on economic, social, and political development. Already in 1995, the European Parliament issued a report entitled Linking Relief, Rehabilitation and Development, LRRD. This document looked at aid effectiveness and the need to engage in relief efforts that reinforce development objectives, as well as development efforts that prepare communities to better withstand disasters and emergencies, looking to bridge the crucial gaps between humanitarian and development aid. At the same time, it still recognized the need to maintain a degree of separation between the two. However, today we believe that from day one of an emergency, the two approaches should be integrated. Practitioners and agencies must consider long-term needs and economic, social, and political challenges, making sure to do no harm in the process. The humanitarian sector is constantly changing and adapting methodologies to better respond to emergencies while strengthening long-term resilience and capacities. Naamago Odishel, Global Chief Humanitarian and Resilience Officer at ISRAID, has been working in the sector for over a decade now in more than 30 countries around the world. Naama, can you please share with us from your experience how organizations transfer from the emergency response to community development? I think it's a really great question, Chagi, because it's it, typically it was common to look at um, this field as kind of a space for humanitarian actors and development actors, and to look at it in a little bit of a linear in a linear um, manner. But I think that the, the the realization is getting more and more and more clear that it's it's not actually a linear space and in most cases it would be the same communities who suffer from uh humanitarian um emergency situations and then also uh kind of requirements for more more long-term sustainable uh processes and um in development if you will um and and it's not by chance because the one very much affects the other they're intertwined it's also making different countries from the from the get-go 
to be much more vulnerable. So it's this vicious cycle that the same community in most cases would be the ones that are suffering from whatever type of emergency and then try to go towards recovery, try to go towards development and resilience strengthening, strengthening approaches, but then not long after another emergency comes. And I think that it's a little bit of the vicious cycle of the sector that we work in and recognizes now that it's actually not a linear um, process, but actually a cycle. We go into a country during whatever type of an emergency and we work together with the partners to offer the emergency response and relief aid while working together to identify um, efforts towards recovery. And as we uh, approach the recovery phase, we also ask ourselves, wait, but what are the underlying line factors that promoted this degree of de devastation, right? If we are able to tackle the these underlying factors and we are able to work together with the communities on what matters to them when, in order to strengthen these um systems, mechanisms, and capabilities of the communities, then uh, the community will definitely obviously be better better able to, to, um, to manage their day-to-day, -day, but is obviously also better uh, able to withstand any future emergency. And I must say that I, I, I see more and more that the humanitarian sector um, and the development sector, if you will, are having more and more of this realization because, you know, I think in the past years, um, the the sector was trying to to further develop its ex its expertise and professionalism um, uh, and specialization in different aspects from the emergency response to the development work and you know it, it it became a little bit like you know going to the doctor to to for a checkup and to have one person see your hand and another person see your leg but no one to understand that this is actually the same human body that uh, is that is going to the doctor right um and i think that now there's more and more realization that it doesn't matter that we as international humanitarian or development actors come into a community with this very specific spe specialization because the community we work with and the humans that we work with, they're the same individuals. So we're, you know, we're trying to, to bring the best of our expertise from these different angles, but the person with whom we're working is actually the, ex the exact same person. And in that sense, uh, we are creating this um, uh, scattered uh, ability for the community itself to respond. And uh, in that sense, I think that the humanitarian sector realizes that, makes a lot of efforts towards that now. And um, and yeah, it's, it requires a little bit, little bit of modesty and honesty. The ability of the community to respond is key, as you mentioned. How do you work with the community from day one to increase resilience and future capacities? It's important to say that the, the concept or the imagination that we have of these type of situation is that when you come into the midst of an emergency, people are only, only, only looking at the now and the how, like on the immediate response. Uh, and I find it inspiring and surprising every time to see that as we come to respond into, to whatever type of an emergency, Whoever we speak to, one is very much focused on, to, on responding to the situation that is created in the in the moment, responding to you know the the crisis itself. But in almost every emergency that I went to, they also very much tell themselves, 
while we're doing it, we have to make sure that this will not happen again. And how do we, we, the, the authorities, the communities, the, 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 the civil society, how do we make sure that as we respond now, we will be able to offer whatever type of uh, service, whatever type of response to our community for the long run. So even in the case of Ukraine, for example, that we're talking about, you know, the midst of the war, we're, I, I think, two months in, we're already doing a mission into Ukraine, meeting with uh, uh, all authorities and communities, et cetera, within Ukraine. They raised the flag of mental health. They said that they understand that one of the, the main issues, the, the office of the first lady actually raised the flag of the mental health, understanding that one of the issue, uh, main issues that the community will have to uh, manage is uh, everything related to the psychosocial aspect and the mental health related issues of this war at the community level and in terms of the uh, injured and their in the uh, surrounding circles of the injured people. Because it's not that we transition to, okay, now we finished, you know, uh, distributing tapolines around the country. So we are now able to think on how we're going to construct the roofs. No, it's all intertwined from day one as we work with the community, as we work with the partners, already with them, the way we do the work on the one hand responds to the urgent needs that are there now, but at the same time is already anticipating uh, how it, things are going to develop and what might become. And I think maybe that's one of the key elements that for, for us here at Israel, it is important to promote. We come, we work with the community and uh, and we plan for the long run. Um, and I think that in that sense, we, we come into the community and we are very strongly focused on developing what we call in Hebrew a brave partnership. Um, that is not that is not okay great i'm here this is what i have do you want to take it great you know the best case the best case uh, a fancy a fancy you know a design of subgranting or or whatever um it's really an approach that has to take into consideration into consideration the capabilities the capacities the know-how that the partner has and I'm not saying that an international partner needs to, you know, uh, make themselves transparent. But I think that it is it. We have to work in a way that is much more honoring the um, the contribution, the complementary contribution of both sides, with insisting on the leadership of the national partners in order to create that type of a uh, cycle that will uh, later on blossom into actual capacity and skills that appropriate skill set to better withstand uh, whatever type of future emergency or the routine, right? If you're strong today, you'll be better able to respond to an emergency in the future. I definitely agree. How does taking into consideration the know-how of local partners fit in the capacity-building approach of international organizations? It almost feels like it's doing the opposite. This concept of capacity-building is, I hope, it's getting out of uh, more and more out of use um, because to many organizations, it's just a fancy word to say, let's let you know, let's work together, let's train you on what we know very well how to do in order to make sure that you are actually doing what we would have done if we were here or if you know we were not it's not it's not really what 
what this interaction should look like, right? Uh, it's uh, this this type of capacity building is actually not allowing the space for national actors to to bring themselves to the most. Um, and this not, this capacity building, or what is uh, I hope will come obviously capacity strengthening, or this really brave partnership and collaboration should really promote um, the agency and the know-how that exists with injecting the expertise that is coming from outside which is it, it's 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 uh it's important is in its place and it's not that i'm saying that international expertise and specialization we should you know leave it somewhere because it's not brought from the community i also you know went to the university to study to gain expertise it's fine there is global know-how we should share it but we should share it in a way that doesn't take away the agencies of the community to lead their own and this is what we're looking for when we come to an emergency we're always we always uh say here we're not looking for the needs we're not doing a needs assessment we're doing a vision and uh and uh objective assessment because if we find that if you we work with a community that knows where they want to go then together we can figure out how how to get there together it's hard to imagine but it's been a year now since the war began how would you describe the situation there now? What has changed and what is your long-term approach? One of the classes I remember from when I that made the most impact uh, when I was a student for Global was really the, the complexity theory. Because we know how it begins, we don't know how it develops. And we have to leave the space for, for the interactions and the, and the dynamic of the program management to happen. And yeah, we're a year into Ukraine. Uh, the situation there is, you know, it's a little bit of a, a stable routine of an emergency, I would say. Uh, it is a protracted emergency, but again, once again, a different than what we see, for example, in refugee cases or in refugee camps or uh, integration resettlement. I just came back from uh, Colombia, where we have worked with the Venezuelan uh, community. The situation in, in Ukraine is a, different, is a bit different because they... They are in a routine. They are going back to their every everyday life and they just know to include in it, you know, 10 minutes every couple of hours that they have a siren and they need to go to the shelters. Um, with the one year coming in, there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of ten, ten, tension. It's very tense with um it's not clear how it's going to develop and whether this one year uh, milestone will also come along with uh, uh, additional um, further in invasion from uh, the, the Russian um, army. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, uh, preparedness um, while keeping a routine. We work there with a community, a very, very, very strong team of local professionals who are serving their communities, one with a mental health related issues, uh, child friendly spaces and child environments that allow a safe space for, um, I, I don't want to even say processing, it's not the right word, but just maintaining, a, holding the emotional ability to maintain this type of routine. Uh, Again, we're also doing similar things with the uh, Ministry of Health that are that are working in the community and also in the hospitals where uh, they they serve the injured uh, people and their families, of course, their uh, circles of belongings. 
There has been a lot of criticism around the disproportion of international support provided to Ukraine in comparison to emergencies occurring at the same time in other regions, as well as the indirect effect this had on the Horn of Africa increasing its drought tremendously. How much control and independence do organizations actually have when prioritizing support and relief? It's, it's, a, it's a global game and it's a political chess you know, exercise that, that we're a part of. And yes, we have more resources to work in Ukraine than in other places. Not that we would like to have any less in Ukraine, but yes, we would very much uh, like to promote, uh, to be able to advocate and to promote the situations in in other places as well. Um, and I think that, you know, in 2022, out of the 15 most vulnerable countries in globally, 12 of them required uh, international response, inter international um, uh, support to respond to uh, emergencies, right? Um, there are more and more, um, there are more and more um, displaced communities globally, three times the amount at the end of 2022 than there were uh, at the end of 2020. Uh, famine, hunger, uh, conflict, displacement. And we, I think that another element that you were mentioning now is also the secondary emergencies, right? We speak about the war in Ukraine, we imagine the community in Ukraine or maybe in the surrounding environments that, that are displaced. But there's also a lot of further implications, as you were mentioning, for secondary uh, emergencies, either for the community that is at the, at the heart of the emergency situation or in the example that you gave in the Horn of Africa now. It does require all of us to be very aware very much on top of it and very agile to find uh, the right ways and opportunities to advocate um, for the appropriate response in the appropriate context. And it's fine that funding goes towards the thing that just now happened. It's also our responsibility to make sure that other places and other humans are not being forgotten. Currently, I'm staying in Moldova, in Chisinau. I just want to help. It was no matter with who, how and where. I realized that I couldn't just sitting at home every day and reading news. So I understand that I can help and from Chisinau also. I hope I will come back to Odessa, but now I have found a job that brings me pleasure. So all my future plans connected with it. I don't feel that I'm like a refugee. Um, I think it's, uh, of course, connect, connect with um, our team members because they not say me like you are from Ukraine. How do you feel every day? And it's uh, I haven't uh, feel like I'm refugee. Uh, I have a terrible uh, situation or after this war, I feel comfortable now uh, in a lot of shelters. Now we propose uh, the managers say that the people not refugees are like guests. I want to finish now with some words of Neil Deng, a South Sudanese refugee, writer and community activist. According to the United Nations, before the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, there were already an unbelievable 82.4 million forcibly displaced people across the world. From the very first days of the Ukraine crisis, we have seen that the international community can come together to elevate the suffering of those fleeing war. 
people can when they want to respond to refugees at their countries. Of course, the world's response to the Ukraine refugee crisis was also less than perfect, but it was much better than what we have seen in the past. And it showed us what is possible. It showed us that the international community can embrace those fleeing war, that the governments can swiftly set up safe pathways for those seeking refugee, that universities and schools can offer places to refugee children to ensure they do not have to give up on their futures due to war and hardship that common citizens can step up and speak up so the human rights of refugees in their countries are respected, that we can integrate long-term needs and development much better into a crisis response than we have seen before. However, the war in Ukraine continues. Uh, of course, we, I have uh, contact with my parents every day. We are, have my father call me every day, every time. Uh, yes, and uh, I sent a lot of photos of me. Uh, of course, <laughs> I miss so much. It's hard to me. Honestly, it's really hard because uh, I haven't been so long without my parents. And but I understand that that I should do it. I should be um, strong, uh, powerful now. Yeah.